At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Ken Reed. So normally he breathes like this. And then when he would fall asleep, it turned into this. That and more. But before that, I want to talk about one of our very favorite sponsors. I'm talking about Harry's.com. Harry's sends shaving kits for men in the mail. And I am not lying. I am completely addicted to my Harry's shaving kit. Such a clean, smooth shave. You know, shaving is a pain. It's uncomfortable. You can nick yourself. And the worst part is that razor blades today are insanely expensive if you just go to the regular drugstore. But Harry's is about half the price of those big brand blades. They ship for free. The starter set is an amazing deal. For just $15, you get a razor, foaming shave gel, and three razor blades. You could be paying $32 for an eight-pack of blades, but with Harry's, you're going to be getting these German-engineered blades, beautiful, and the shaving cream, the foam cream, and the moisturizer, it's like going to the barber. It's like getting a professional job done because your face is just so baby soft afterwards. So go to harrys.com, and Harry's will give you $5 off if you type in our coupon code R-I-S-K with your first purchase. That's harrys.com. The coupon code is R-I-S-K at the checkout for $5 off and start shaving better today. Also, you might remember Chris Castiglione was a member of the Risk team for a long time. He created our site, risk-show.com. And Chris went on to create an online class called One Month HTML. A lot of Risk fans took the class and loved it. Well, now... 
Chris and his business partner, Matan, have created One Month Rails, a series of bite-sized video lessons and step-by-step tutorials to teach anyone, even a total beginner, how to build their first web application, like a simple photo-sharing app, in just 30 days. If you get stuck, there's always a real person to help you out. In One Month Rails, you'll learn Ruby on Rails, HTML, CSS, Bootstrap, GitHub, and more. Over 14,000 students have already started building their dream app and taking their career to the next level. So what are you waiting for? Enroll now at onemonth.com slash risk loves you. <laughs> Enrollment is typically $99, but if you join now, you'll get a one-time discount of 25% off for joining. And as always, you're helping to support risk. Again, it's one month rails, 30 minutes a day for 30 days, and you'll actually build your first web app. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is DJ Wook behind me now. We're calling today's episode Misfits. These are three stories of people who felt like outsiders, like freaks, like uh, red-nosed reindeer, perhaps. In just a bit, we'll hear from Jesse Chap, a Risk fan who pitched us a story, and the two of us went over it on Skype. Real pleasure working with Jesse. But before that, we're going to feature one of our old favorites, Mr. Ken Reed, stand-up comedian based in Boston. You can always find Ken at ikenreed.com. And here he is now at the Risk Live show in New York City with a story we call Little Shop of Horrors. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Uh, I am a huge comic book fan. I have been my whole life, and people, excellent. Uh, And people are like, well, you probably are so happy in this 21st century where the world has sort of come to you, and everybody really loves comic books now, and it is a living hell for me. (laughs) Because people don't really understand the struggles that we went through when we liked comic books in the 1980s. And people say that being gay is not a choice, you're born that way. It used to be that way for comic books. It was not, you didn't discover it, it didn't come around, you were just born liking it. And a lot of times you wished you weren't. And people are like, Ken, I don't know, I I really like comic books. And I'm like, oh, what do you read? And they're like, I saw the Avengers movie. (laughs) And I'm like, the best we had was the Incredible Hulk on TV. That was it. 
you saw the Avengers movie, and they're like, well, I like really nerdy things, like I'm really into Doctor Who. And I'm like, oh, you mean a 50-year-long television series that is the longest-running television series in history and the most popular television show in an entire westernized nation? That must be very difficult to like something that obscure. (laughs) People don't understand what it was like. We didn't have comic book stores on every corner. I had to take two buses to get to a comic book store. If you wanted a t-shirt with a comic book thing on it, you couldn't go to Target and buy a Ghost Rider shirt. You had to special order it from a comic book store and it came in one size, which was extra large. (laughs) Which made little to no sense given the fact that it should have come in two sizes, small and 4X. Those were the people that enjoyed comic books at the time. And I've been going to comic conventions for 30 years, since I was four years old. And we did not have things like women who went to those conventions. Well, now to be fair, we had things like women, but they were not actual women. There were a few gentlemen who reached a weight that they had a gynecomastica or whatever it was, I forget the (laughs) medical term, but they weren't actual women. And for the most part, there wasn't even a lot of children. It was me and then a bunch of middle-aged men. Now, I thought other people would like the fact that I like comics when I was growing up, and it never occurred to me that they wouldn't. Because, I don't know if you know, but comic books are not sports in any way. The first time I had a crush on a girl was in the fourth grade, and I paid her what I thought was the highest compliment imaginable. I said, Courtney, you look exactly like Brett Blevins' depiction of Ileana Magic Rasputin in The New Mutants. Which she did. And she called me gay. I think I could probably use that as a pickup line in any bar in New York City right now and it would probably be successful. That's the world that we exist in now, and it's not right. The comic book conventions in Boston, where I grew up, were held in a part of Chinatown that at the time was called the Combat Zone. That was the official name on maps. So we would have to go through a gauntlet of hookers My father would walk with just his hands on the sides of my head like blinders so that I didn't see the neon legs. There was actual neon sign of legs opening that I had to get past to get to a comic book convention. And when you would go there, as I said, it was the only child, nobody dressed up. They just wore whatever fit, essentially. (laughs) And there was a very unique smell at these conventions. It smelled like people purchased large Italian subs as deodorant. Like they just got a large Italian sub with hots and split it in half and then just rolled it on. That was the predominant smell with a little bit of musty newspaper. And you would go and you would purchase comics and you wouldn't have fun. You would curse your hobby. Like you would buy things and be like, God damn it. I wish I didn't like this, but you liked it. And the best example of this is an incident that happened to me when I was 10 years old. I went to my local comic book store, which was five towns away. 
I took two buses by myself. And this particular store, the manager of the store was a very large gentleman. I am not good at guessing weights, but he was like two to 3,000 pounds. He was somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in there. I'm pretty sure they made him the manager because he was physically unable to leave the store. I think that's why he was the manager. And he suffered from a, con well, probably several conditions, including uh, he was the first person that I saw, maybe the last person that I saw uh, had beard dandruff. Uh, and eyebrow dandruff, which was very strange. Uh, he also had narcolepsy, which is a medical condition in which you just fall asleep for minutes at a time, completely unannounced without warning, and then wake up again. So that meant everyone who shopped at this store used to steal everything. <laughs> so this guy, I mean, as I said, he was very, very large. His t-shirts looked like he put them on when he was much smaller. Like they weren't too tight, they looked like he was in a body switching movie. Like you know how the adult and the child will switch and then the person who is now the adult has like little kids clothes and they're too small? That's kind of what all his clothes look like. He also seemed to sweat. When I look on the ingredients of certain processed foods and I see high fructose corn syrup, I just imagine it's all produced from his body. That's what his sweat looked like. It was very viscous, very viscous. So he would fall asleep and people knew he was asleep because his breathing changed. So normally he breathed like this. And then when he would fall asleep, it turned into this. You could grab off the street, just outside of Boston, grab, I don't know, five or 10 gentlemen between the ages of 25 and 40, put them in a room, play this noise, and they would just involuntarily steal everything that wasn't tied down. Like people trained themselves. When they heard that, they would just grab everything and run. So when this guy would wake up, he would just start grabbing people and yelling, put that back, like some sort of enraged ogre. Now, I never stole anything, and I've never stolen anything in my life except for one exception, which I'll get to in a moment. I'm in the store one day on a Saturday to get my comic books. I was buying the new edition of Who's Who in the DC Universe, which is a comic book about comic books. That's how into this I was. He falls asleep, kids steal things, they run out the door, and when he wakes up, there are three people left in the store. There is 10-year-old me, a five-year-old boy, completely unaccompanied by anyone. <laughs> this was Massachusetts, so on a Saturday morning, his parents probably dropped him off and were like, we're gonna go scratch off scratch tickets for like four hours. You just stay in there. We're gonna drink uh, iced coffee till we have diabetes. So, he was just in there. He was a good babysitter. And a third gentleman who was a fan of role-playing games. Now. Just so you know, the hierarchy of nerddom at the time was like horror movies, science fiction, comic books, way down here role-playing games, and then uh, KISS fans and adult wrestling fans. They were much, much further on the bottom. The world has changed. So the dirty little secret of comic book stores, which would be a bad title for something, was that they made most of their money selling role-playing games. So all of that stuff was in the back of the store 
in much the same way that video stores had pornography in the back of the store. Everybody knew that was their moneymaker, but they were kind of hiding it back there. So this kid was back there. And this kid was a full-on teenage Iron Maiden fan. Like, jean jacket he probably made himself. Uh, he had like a, so almost a mustache. Like, it looked like he had a mustache, but then dyed it blonde so people wouldn't notice that kind of mustache. So he was back there. So the guy wakes up and he starts yelling, put these comic books back. I clearly have no comic books on me. The role-playing kid is in the role-playing world and they don't steal anything because they think it'll come back to bite them in the ass in the form of an elf or something. I don't really know about role-playing games. And the five-year-old boy. One piece of information about this five-year-old boy that I forgot to mention was that he had a heart condition that required he wear a medical apparatus, a heart monitor of some sort, that was vaguely comic book shaped. Yes. So this guy wakes up and he starts pointing at this five-year-old boy and yelling, put those comic books back. Except it sounded more like, put those back! Like he sounded like Ludo from Labyrinth. That's basically, actually, that's not a bad description of the gentleman. He was very much like an unlovable Ludo from Labyrinth who had been actually dipped in the bog of eternal stench. That's pretty much what this guy was like. So the kid's like, eh, I'm five, I don't know, I don't know anything. Yeah. Because if you accuse five-year-olds of theft, like they get terrified, especially when you're a 10,000 pound man yelling at them. So I'm kind of frozen in fear. Role-playing kid starts to perk up and see what's going on. He's yelling at this kid, put those comics back. The kid goes, it's not a comic book, it's a heart monitor. I have a heart condition, it's a heart monitor. They start yelling back and forth at each other. We don't know what's gonna happen. The guy sort of stomps, he fee-fi-fo-fums his way over to this child. He looks down at him and he makes a decision, a life-changing decision. His choice, not the move I would recommend, was to grab this five-year-old child and to tear his shirt off. <laughs> like a reverse Hulk Hogan. Just <laughs> grabbed it and ripped this kid's shirt off. And he had a medical apparatus. He was like a, some kind of cybernetic with wires and a whole thing. And it was, he was not lying. He had a comic book shaped heart monitor on his chest. I was shocked. It's one of the few times I've been shocked in my whole life. The five-year-old started crying instantly because any five-year-old, even one without a heart condition, I wouldn't recommend you test this theory, but if you walk up to a five-year-old and tear their shirt off, <laughs> normally they'll start crying. That's normally how it works. So now it's me, a teenage heavy metal fan, a half-naked sick boy, and an enraged, sweaty ogre. The role-playing kid decided he needed to spring into action. So he walks over and he stares at this guy right in the eyes. This kid probably weighed 18 pounds. <laughs> he stared right in the guy's eyes and the little 12 sided die in his brain, I could tell that it was rolling. I could tell that he was rolling it to make a decision. That's what he was doing. And it landed on a number. And that number caused him to wind up and deck this large gentleman. 
And this guy went down. And he went down hard. It was the first time that I realized many cliches are true. I was like, the bigger they are, the harder they definitely fall. Like, and he fell face down, face down. And I was like, he is dead. That's what, he just killed him. Because a man of that size could not take, he couldn't take the fall, as in the season. I don't even know if he could take a fall from that height. So as far as I know, I've just witnessed what could be described as child abuse and a murder. That's what I'm pretty sure that I've just seen. Because I'm not, I'm 10 years old. I am in no way a medical expert for either of these two things. So now I'm like, I witnessed things I should not have seen. I don't know what's gonna happen next. And now this kid, this role-playing kid, this is like his physical bar mitzvah. Like he's a man now, like he's just like, He's just like, yeah, I did. I, he was all pumped up. And he goes, take whatever you want. <laughs> I'm a very moral person. As I said, I have never stolen anything in my life. But in that moment, there was nothing else I could do but take something. That was like, really, I had no choice. So I grabbed an extra large Batman shirt and I got the hell out of there. Now, I will mention, I own over 50 Batman shirts now, and I keep purchasing them in a weird attempt to somehow right this wrong. I will tell you that. A horrible traumatic experience. If that happened to anyone, in any type of store, they would never go back to that store again. They would never even think about whatever that store sells. If that store sold their insulin, they would just be like, I'm gonna die, guys. I'm not, I can't go back there. I can't go back there. It was that traumatic. I was back there the very next Saturday. I didn't wanna be there. Do you understand? I didn't want to be there, but I had to be there because it was the only way I could get comic books. And I was like, we all might get murdered the next time I go in there. I don't know what's gonna happen next. So I just want people to sort of appreciate the world you live in now. You can go on your phone, you can buy comic books, have them shipped to your house. Your mailman is not gonna fall asleep and wake up covered in corn syrup and then abuse a five-year-old child and be murdered in front of you. So every time you see an Avengers movie, just thank me. You don't have to do it out loud, but thank the people who came before you and those of us that suffered. Thank you guys so much. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Superman, Batman and Robin, Wonder Woman, with their space monkey, Bleak, dedicated to truth, justice, and peace for all mankind. Every day that I bartend, I get people coming up to me and trying to guess kind of what I am, but it's always split up between these two very different groups of people. One group of people will always ask me, are you Italian? 
Are you Greek? Are you Hispanic? Always in that order. But then there's this other group of people. Sometimes they won't even order a drink. They'll just sit at my bar and say, are you Jewish? Like, that's the first thing they'll say to me. I always think it's weirder when other people don't ask me that because I know it's what they're thinking. When they're guessing Hispanic, Greek, Italian, I know they're thinking, are you Jewish? Because that's like the one thing they're waiting for me to respond with. But when it comes down to it, I've never really felt like I was anything else but Jewish. Like, that is my response. And it all like really started with me when I was in the eighth grade and I had to do a project on where my ancestors immigrated to America from. And I was like, mom, where are we from? And she was like, well, we're from Russia. And I was like, oh, cool. So we're Russian. I have a country to study. And she was like, well, no, but they're from like little Yiddish colonies within Russia. They only spoke Hebrew. So you're really just Jewish. And so I, like, I went to my teacher with that. And that wasn't really an acceptable answer to him because Jewish isn't a place. Um, so he didn't really want me to study it. And I told him the whole conversation. He was like, I think you should study Russia. That'd be really good for you. So I did. And you know, I didn't really go into much more detail with that. I just knew there's something a little not kosher about that whole entire thing. But being Jewish was never really something that I felt like was going to define me because everyone around me was Jewish. You know, I grew up in this huge majority. My high school was 4,500 students and it was 60% Jewish. Everyone I knew was a Jew or a friend of the Jews or just like a wonderful person. I came from a very open, loving community. And so that's what I expected the entire world to be. I didn't really know much else outside of my community. I feel like I went until I was like 17 years old till I even realized that the world wasn't really that friendly or open to everyone else. I actually remember the day that I found out that gay people couldn't marry because I felt like that didn't make sense to me. I was confused and I was like, well, what else don't I know about the world? How ignorant am I? What have I been shielded from? What is everyone not telling me? So my senior year in high school, I kind of got a crush on one of the guys in our group. His name was Matt, but he was dating one of the other girls at the time. They had been dating for a little while. She was a little bit younger, but she was a really sweet girl too. And we had known each other for four years, me and Matt, and our feelings for each other became more and more apparent. And like, I felt like he was like emotionally cheating on her in some ways too. And we were kind of crossing that friend line in that way as everything became more apparent to us, he broke up with her. And I remember when he was telling me about the breakup over AOL Instant Messenger at the time, he told me that he broke up with her because God told him to. And I didn't really question it that much because I was just really happy that he was now single and we could date. So it didn't really, I didn't really think about that too much. And we kind of immediately started dating after that. But things, you know, he changed right away after that happened. And we didn't date for too long, but still. Towards the end of the summer, he came over to my house and we went on a walk and he was acting really, really weird and really quiet. And I was like, well, what's going on, Matt? And I'll never forget it because he just looked at me and very quietly, it was just like, God told me to break up with you. I remember thinking, well, that's not fair. God told you to break up with that other girl too. Like. That can't happen twice in a row. That's not a thing. I realized in that moment that we were both ignoring something that was very important to him. And he told me, he was like, you know, your being Jewish is a problem. Like, it can't work out in the end. 
but I was like 17 or 18 years old. Like I just wanted to date this guy that I had a really big crush on. Why was my being Jewish a problem? We weren't getting married. We were like making out, but he left and I actually never talked to him again. And then I, I moved to go to college. So I went to high school in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago and I only went to college two hours south from there. And I didn't really think that two hours could make a really big difference. My roommate, Marie, was actually a really awesome person. Marie and I instantly befriended the four other girls who lived in the two rooms next to us at the end of the hall. And we kind of did everything together. They were all Catholic school girls, too. It's what they all had in common. Except for Marie, they all kind of treated me like a Jew alien. I was the first Jew that they had all never ever met. And it was really weird because I had never been someone's first Jew before. Uh, They started asking me a lot of questions and I'll I'll never really forget their gasps as they realized who I was because I was so foreign to them. I tried to answer all their questions the best I could. I did, after all, have 10 years of Hebrew school behind me, but it was still really weird to just be, like, bombarded all the time with these questions. It was during the first few weeks of college, too, that we were hanging out in one of the guys' rooms downstairs, and one of the girls said to one of the the guys, she said, Oh, Jesse's a Jew. And... I remember looking at their face like, what in the flesh? We have one here? And he like very slowly came over to me and like put his hand on my head. I was just like staring at him because I had no idea what was going on. And he very sincerely asked me, well, where are your horns? And I was completely taken aback like, oh, So you think that Jews have horns, you think that we're all the devil. But I didn't say that, I I just left the room because I was so shocked that somebody thought that or was taught that or whatever it may be. I didn't know that was a thing. And that whole semester, things like that happened every now and then, and it was always those weird moments of, well, who are all these people that I'm spending my time with? One of the girls in our group, Pam, she would knock on my door every Sunday or every other Sunday and ask me if I wanted to go to church with her. And I always politely turned her down and was like, I'll meet you at brunch. I never really took it too seriously. You know, she always had this thing where she would kind of like laugh through the way she talked. So like, I never really knew how to take it anyway. I didn't really want to start a conversation with her either. Like, hey, can you stop knocking on my door every Sunday? Because I'm probably not going to go to church with you. So just like kind of let it slide. But there was one night that kind of changed everything for me. I remember it was a Saturday. It was pretty late. And me and four of the girls did something else that night, like ordered dinner and watched a movie. We're just hanging out. And as the conversation usually turned at some point in the night, they started asking me questions about my religion again. And I was, at this point, getting increasingly tired with their questions. I remember the exact question they were asking me when everything happened. One of the girls turned to me and said, well, where do you go when you die? And that's when Pam walked into the room. She hadn't been there with us all night. And so I started to answer the question as best as I could. But even with 10 years of Hebrew school behind me, I didn't really even know the answer because honestly, heaven and hell 
especially hell, was never a big focus in Hebrew school or in my and everything that I learned about Judaism. Like a lot of the focus was on the now and my culture, and that's kind of what was more important to me was my family and my culture, not thinking about the afterlife. But that's when Pam interrupted. She went on this really, really long rant. I call it a hate monologue now. I don't really know what else it would be. And after the entire thing happened, I left my room and went into the staircase and called my best friend who was living in Montreal and cried for an hour. And then I went back to my room and I proceeded to write down every single word that Pam said to me, something that I'm still not completely sure why I did to this day, but I did. And so here is what Pam said to me when she interrupted me that night when I was answering the question about where I go when I die. Jesse, not only are you not one of God's chosen or whatever the fuck you Jews believe, you are going to hell because no one can save you. I can't believe I've spent week after week praying for your soul. I always saw the judgment in your eyes as I asked you every weekend to go to church with me, hoping, praying I could save your lost soul only to learn that you were a Jew and you were probably judging me the moment you met me. So what? You think you're one of the chosen people? I don't give a shit, you know that? You're wrong. Everything you believe and have been taught is wrong. I cannot believe that you've been flaunting this flaw of yours. And I hate to break it to you, but no one can save you now. You are fucked for the afterlife. There is actual proof that the Bible is 100% correct, and no one can argue that. You cannot argue the word of the Bible because there is no truer text. Jesus is all there is, and you are going to hell because you are a traitor. And I don't give a shit what you people believe. There is proof, and I will not stand here sugarcoating it for you. And I don't care that we've bonded over the past semester. My intent was to get you to go to church and save your soul, but apparently that is a pointless task. You and your people are idiots for rejecting the idea of Jesus. It's like fucking Christ killer. He's self-chosen piece of shit. And I am sober. I did not drink tonight because I am a good Christian. This is me saying what is true in my heart, sober and loud for you to hear. You will forever burn for being a Jew, and you better fucking believe that I will no longer waste my time trying to get a hopeless soul who has been cursed so badly with being born Jewish to find the strength to turn to Jesus. No one loves you, not Jesus, not me. You're going to burn like all of your ancestors did before you in the ovens. That's just where you'll end up, and I am so fucking happy for it. So she left the room, and there was this silence, and the four girls sat there, and I could feel just everyone looking at me, waiting for a reaction. And after a long minute, one of the girls turned to me and said, I can't believe she said that to your face. And I asked her if that's what everyone thought of me, and there wasn't really a response. Everyone just kind of left for their rooms, unsure of what to make of the night. My roommate, Marie, though, and I'm still so thankful for her that night, she turned to me and started apologizing, saying how embarrassed she was and that she doesn't stand with Pam and she can't believe that happened, but she was really afraid to stand up to her alone and she wished she had. And that's when I left the room to go in the hallway and cry. And I'm still really glad that I wrote down everything she said because I'm pretty sure that if I didn't write that down, I would have convinced myself that it never happened. The next morning, I actually decided to confront Pam about it. 
I remember I thought all night about what I was gonna say to her because I'm really bad in the middle of a fight, but I'm great 12 hours later. Plenty of time to think about my response. So I had thought about it for hours, what I was gonna say to her. And I knocked on her door and she answered and I said, Pam, I need to talk to you about last night. And she said, what happened last night? Um, well, the things that you said to me when you came in my room. And she said, um, I didn't see you last night. And I was like, well, you did actually. And you said a lot of horrible things to me. And she said, wow, Jesse, um, I was really drunk last night. I don't even remember like coming in your room. I don't remember how I got home. I was like really drunk. I kind of decided to like leave it at that because I didn't know if she was lying, if she actually had been drunk. Like, I don't know what it was, but fine. And there was no point in continuing that conversation. And I knew I wasn't going to get anywhere. So I ended up leaving the school. I moved all the way to the West Coast and started over. I didn't really tell everyone the complete truth about what had happened to me. I told everyone that I missed being in a city and I wanted a better theater program with playwriting, which was all true. But besides my best friend and a few other selective friends since then, you know, I didn't tell anyone about what Pam had done to me that night, what she had said to me and how that was a really big reason and why I wanted to leave because I didn't really feel safe anymore. Because I, I did, I felt a lot of shame about everything that had happened there. And it took a long time of being on the West Coast to really come to terms with it and start to realize who I was outside of Chicago too, in a new city with new friends and new people. Since this happened, this happened almost a decade ago, I've actually been talking to Marie a lot about it and I've seen a lot of the girls since then. They've all grown into such beautiful people and I was really, really happy that I actually decided to see these girls again because I think I had a really negative attitude from the past about what had happened or an image of how I saw them and remember them from that one night and then seeing them a few times since then was really good for me. And I haven't seen Pam. I remember one year Marie came up to me and she said, Jessie, she's changed. She's different. You'd be really proud. She's come a long way. And then a few years later she said, I don't know if she's changed. She said something to me the other night and I'm not sure anymore. And I was like, okay. But you know, I was really happy that I decided to see the other girls and I'm, I'm still really glad that I made the decision too and they're still my friends. So at the bar still, you know, I do still get the people who come up to me and just sit down and say, are you Jewish? And sometimes I get a little shy about it or I don't want to respond. But then I, I remember everything that I went through and I, I really am proud of my culture, my heritage and where I've come from and how far I've gotten since that time in college. So now I will respond with, you know, I am Jewish. What do you want to drink?
This is Risk. This is the new pornographers behind me now. That was Jesse Chap that we just heard sharing that story. Risk fan who reached out to us. And before that, a little interstitial from our episode editor, Mr. Jeff Barr. You know, a lot of you have reached out to let us know that you are new Risk fans, that you've only discovered the podcast recently. Well, whether or not you're new or old, you should know we've always relied very dearly on the word of mouth of our fans, spreading the word, letting people know about Risk. And one of the best ways to do that is to get your local public radio station to air our holiday Risk episode. We have one episode that we prepared for, you know, okay to be heard on public radio, so it's a little censored. You know, it's not the usual completely uncensored sort of Risk, but it's a wonderful episode of some of our very best Christmas stories. The episode can be found at prx.org. Just search for Holiday Risk. That's prx.org. Search for Holiday Risk. And listen, you can Google various NPR stations around the country and request that they play the episode as well. So let's do it, folks. Just take a couple of minutes and get your local public radio station to play this one very special episode of Risk for the Holidays. It's at prx.org, and you search for Holiday Risk. Now, folks, this episode is also being released on Max Fun Week. You know we are a part of the Maximum Fun network of podcasts. Well, Maximum Fun is having a big week of just all sorts of extra fun this week. There's way too much going on for me to go into here, but if you go to MaximumFun.org slash Max Fun Week, you can learn all about it. For example, on Wednesday, October 15th at 5 p.m. New York time, I will be doing a Reddit Ask Me Anything thing on Reddit. <laughs> but there's trivia contests and coloring contests and uh, meetup days. There's so much going on. Just go to MaximumFun.org slash MaxFunWeek from October 15th through the 21st. Our last story today comes to us from the show that we did in the wonderful city of Portland, Oregon. You can hear what a great crowd we had there that night. We always love coming to Portland. Here is Eric Hoofnagel. Eric said he was very new to the whole experience of getting up on stage and sharing stories, but what an amazing job he did with this story we call The Milk of Amnesia. So growing up, I was always a chubby kid, um, but as I grew, um, chubby became fat, and fat became obese. And by the time I was 18 years old, I was 310 pounds. Nice round number. Uh, nice round existence. Um, 
And it didn't come as a surprise. I mean, I had a really bad diet when I was growing up. Um, I thought a great snack was uh, melted cheese. I thought, <laughs> I thought a healthy snack was a banana cut up in a bowl with about two cups of whipped cream. Healthy. And uh, when I got a little older, you know, while kids were drinking beer and wine at parties, I was drinking Baileys. And not just <laughs> shots of Baileys. No, no, no. Bottles of Baileys. And also, I was, uh, I was that kid who only wore exclusively uh, sweatpants and t-shirts with dragons on them. Um, yeah, I was a virgin for a while. Uh, <clears throat> so, <laughs> it shouldn't have come as such a giant surprise when uh, one day, after uh, taking my fourth giant shit of the day... Looking in the bowl and finding a copious amount of blood. Oh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> that was my reaction. Um, so after building up the confidence to go to my parents and tell them I was shitting blood at 18 years old, um, we went to my uh, physician, who had been my physician my whole life, so he was technically my pediatrician. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, and he told me I had to go in for a colonoscopy, and that's where they put a camera right up your butthole, <laughs> take a look around. So uh, the day of the procedure, I went in and uh, left my mom in the waiting room, and uh, the small, very angry Asian nurse took me back uh, to the you know preparation station, and her English was really bad but I think that she was trying to make up for it with volume. Like I would understand her a little better. So once she got me back to the room, she said, she yelled, take all your clothes and put them in the basket. And uh, I had no idea what that meant. Um, so she repeated, take all your clothes and put them in the basket. <laughs> I swear this isn't racist. Um, <laughs> Eventually, after she yelled this at me about four times, I realized she said, take off your clothes and put them in the basket. So I, she left, which was nice. Uh, I, I took off my sweatpants and my t-shirt, so it didn't take long. And I uh, donned the, the traditional gown, the uh, nice paper-thin gown of uh, surgical procedures. And I laid down on the little, I don't know, gurney. Um... <laughs> And I was expecting her to come back in, and instead, in came Nurse Amy. Oh, yeah, I know. Have you seen her, huh? Uh, Nurse Amy was smoking hot. I was 18 years old, you know, chubby, zitty nerd. So uh, this tall, thin, blonde, young, covered in makeup, uh, young woman comes in, and... Uh, she comes in to, you know, check out my veins to put in the, the tubes for, you know, easy drug access. So she's feeling my veins. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't much for conversation at this point because I was mainly focusing on not getting an erection um, because <laughs> it had been a problem in the past. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, even just going to, you know, the orthodontist to get my braces tightened, you know, the, the assistant would brush by and her breasts would brush my head and, you know. But at least there, I had, you know, that little, like, table of tools just, like, right over it. So it just, just hit it and that was good. Um, and no one knew except for me. Uh, so the only thing inhibiting my penis at this point was, you know, a thin paper sheet of gown. So I was very nervous. And I think that saved me because luckily she did not encourage an erection. But after she had, uh, you know, rigged up my hand with all the tubes, she gave me a, uh, <laughs> a People magazine to keep me nice and entertained as she wheeled me back to the operating room. Uh, this was about the time where Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes were just getting together, so they were front center with their giant white smiles and their Scientology. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that was just about the last couple I wanted to see before I went in to you know, get my asshole probed <laughs> for being fat. Uh, so... <laughs> Tom's psycho smile. So I tossed that down uh, just in time to see uh, the last patient being wheeled out of the room. <laughs> and he looked like shit. Uh, he was on his side, snoring loudly with his ass right out, just right where I could see it. Uh, you know, middle-aged, about the age you're supposed to be when you're getting a colonoscopy. And as he was wheeled out, out came two nurses following him with two giant jugs of brown liquid. Oh, yeah, this is going to be fun. So, <laughs> Nurse Amy wheels me into this room, and it's that, you know, classic white, sterile environment and <sighs> classical music playing, which I suppose was supposed to be... Uh, comforting or calming but I was getting a total like Patrick Bateman sort of vibe from this area and it was not good um, so she stops me there in front of the little uh, monitor little screen for looking at buttholes um, and she walks over to the little uh, little table where they've got a little book uh, which <laughs> I peeked over and it's uh, it was a picture book of colons of varying different diseases. So that was nice. I was hoping I wasn't going to be admitted to that book. Next thing I know, uh, in comes the doctor with his, you know, silver hair in a ponytail and his nice groomed beard and his vest. And he's way too fucking excited about this procedure. Way too excited. He comes in, he's like, oh, afternoon, ladies. It's just me and Nurse Amy. <laughs> I don't know if that helped him in some way. Um, <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I'm comfortable. And he starts hitting on Nurse Amy harder than I was. Um, eventually, you know, making his way over to me, asking me about graduating high school. What did I do? Nothing. Um, and then he you know, tells me about what he did. And it was, go down to New Mexico with a couple bottles of tequila and his buddies. I'm like, cool, yeah. 
um, still very excited. And uh, as I'm telling him about graduation, he starts to inject me with uh, a wonderful solution. It's called propofol. It's this white, milky uh, gift from the gods. Um, They call it uh, milk of amnesia because in small amounts, it's meant to put you in a state of, you know, lucidity to take commands, but not remember shit. So it's basically a really potent date rape drug. It's also what killed Michael Jackson. So, oh, I know, I just dropped it down a little bit. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm fine. Um, <laughs> so he starts injecting me with this shit, and he's is obvious he's dealt with this a lot because he goes, as I'm as I'm telling him a story, I start to start to slur my words and kind of disappear a little, and he goes, "You feel that?" <laughs> Yeah, I think this guy recreationally used this shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I say, yeah. <laughs> and he says, okay, well, roll over on your side, exposing my ass. And uh, I was all too willing, because um, I was on cloud nine. And I looked over at the gas tanks and their letters and numbers started to swirl off and float around the room and, and then everything went dark. But, <laughs> I don't think they realized how large I was because they didn't give me enough. And I remember plenty. Good for you guys, right? So, <laughs> Next thing I remember is uh, the doctor's dimming the lights. It's romantic. And uh, he opens the door and in walk way too many people for this procedure. (laughs) I think they must have been students or something or maybe his buddies. His bros. (laughs) Um they all come in and there's that fucking classical music playing so it's like he's (laughs) probing my ass is like becoming the scene from 2001 a space odyssey (laughs) so (laughs) so normally uh it would be really embarrassing to be in a nice dim room having your asshole probed with a bunch of strangers there and classical music playing, but I was high as fuck. (laughs) And this was my stage. And this audience had front row seats to the best show in the world, my colon. So I started hamming it up. Um, (laughs) Telling jokes. At least I think I was telling jokes because they were laughing a lot. And meanwhile, my mom is in the waiting room and she can hear all this. And she later, <laughs> she later told me it was pretty strange to hear an entire room of people cackling in the, you know, colonoscopy ward. And I'm also flirting with Nurse Amy with a newfound confidence. <laughs> 
I'm like, well, <laughs> Amy, what are you doing? And she's shoving shit in my ass. I mean, obviously, I've gotten in, so. <laughs> she's down. Um, then uh, the other effect of propofol starts to take effect, and that's intense hallucination which you're usually supposed to sleep through. So I got to experience this wonderful part. And, uh, you know, things are swimming around the room. Voices are flowing over me like warm water. And my attention goes to the screen, which is a, you know, view inside of me at this point. And there's something in there. There's something at the end of that tunnel. And it's moving out. And it's not shit. I knew that right away. And so I was like, God, why don't these people notice this? There's something coming out of there. And so as it's slowly pushing out, it starts to pass the screen. And now it's floating into the room. And then it floats right past my head. And it's Tom Cruise's face from the fucking People magazine. With this fucking <laughs> stark white smile, that psycho smile. <laughs> and I think I need to let these people know what's going on. So I distinctly remember pointing and yelling, there's a little man in there! And everyone laughed and I passed out. <laughs> Guess it was a little too much for me. Um, so the next memory I have is coming to as a brand new nurse is pushing me out of the room and she's wheeling me to the recovery area um, and she's saying you know you're going to have a little excess gas and before she can finish her sentence I like, lift the blanket with my excess gas <laughs> not <laughs> very concerned with being charming at that point um, and she stops and I look over and sitting next to me is Cheech Marin um, and not just any Cheech Marin it's Cheech Marin directly from Up in Smoke and so he's got his little beanie on and his little tank top and his suspenders and he's like hey how you doing and I'm like oh, it's, it's not alright Cheech and then he <laughs> He ripples, and it's, it's my mom. <laughs> my mom looks nothing like Cheech Marin. Uh, so, <laughs> she's consoling me. Everything will be okay. And I'm like, no, it won't. And then her face, like, slides off her skull, and I pass out again. So then I came to again. The doctor is there talking to my mom, and... I can kind of make out what they're saying, and he's saying, well, we didn't figure it out, so we're going to have to reschedule. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I guess he liked me. Um, and uh, eventually I, I was able to, you know, get up, and my mom, you know, <laughs> I'm like a foot taller than my mom, or two, and she's leading me out of the hospital. My hospital visit concludes with me dancing past pediatrics. <laughs> A waiting room full of children and mothers 
yelling about, I'm so high. Oh, fuck. Oh, but it's cool, man. <laughs> the doctor gave it to me. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool. The cops can't do shit. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's what I was concerned about. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> in the end, I, I did lose most of the weight, and the uh, problem just went away. Um, I wonder if they were connected in some way. Um, but I did have to go back in for another colonoscopy and an endoscopy, where they shove a camera down your throat, because apparently they wanted to, you know, do all the holes. Um, <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't enjoy this at all. Um, you look fantastic. Oh, thank you. Now, <laughs> oh, there's my ego stroke for the night. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in conclusion, although I did have to go back in, and you better believe they dosed me big time when they heard about my memories. <laughs> At least I did get to have another taste of that sweet, sweet milk. <laughs> Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Benjamin Booker behind me now. And listen, we have so many amazing live shows coming up. We're in Pittsburgh on the 17th of October. Come on out and see us. And we'll be doing uh, workshops as well. Go to Steel City Improv to learn about the workshops we'll be doing there in Pittsburgh. Atlanta, we have a show in Atlanta on November 6th. If you want to pitch us to be included in that show, get us your pitch by October 15th. Uh, we'll also be doing workshops on November 7th. Go to villagecomedy.com to find out about the workshops. Albuquerque, we will be in your town on November 13th. 
15th. The pitch deadline is October 15th. And if you want to find out about the workshops I'll be doing there, I'll be doing a couple of kink workshops and a storytelling workshop at Pornotopia. Just Google Pornotopia. Minneapolis. We are in Minneapolis on December 4th. The pitch deadline is November 1st, and we'll be doing workshops there. Just look us up there at Brave New Workshops. And then Seattle, we are in your town again on December 12th. The pitch deadline is November 15th. For more about where Risk is appearing next, we are at risk-show.com slash tour. And if you ever have any questions about a workshops or anything like that, just write to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com. Don't forget to contact your local public radio station and tell them that the Risk Holiday Special is at prx.org and they should play it. And you can even Google other public radio stations and ask them to play it. It's a real treat and it's, you know, it's censored. So it's not our usual fare. It's safe to play (laughs) on public radio. And remember, if you're interested in workshops, but, you know, we're not coming to your town anytime soon, just go to thestorystudio.org because we do one-on-one training over Skype. We have a video lecture course that you can take in your own time. And there's always workshops happening that we can bring to you as well. Just go to thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. you say we both be independent together, huh? It's a deal. We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. <laughs>